Browns podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Good evening, everybody. Locked On Browns, episode 164. Guys, a couple of years I get to sit down with this guy, and these are my favorite, favorite episodes of the year. First off, I'm trying to relax my my uh, cheek muscles here from laughing so hard, just catching up, and uh, he kind of guides me as a guy with an older daughter and me with my younger daughters. But the other thing is, is you're going to get some grad school draft knowledge here this evening. Um, doesn't does things his own way, and you hear a lot of people say, "Look, what I want to hear about prospects is what they can do. I don't need to hear, you know, what grades you have on them, this, that, and the other thing." And nobody has built a better brand, I hate the word sometimes, but sometimes it does apply, than from the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, the RSP Film Room, football guy, staffer, Mr. Matt Waldman. Matt, always one of my favorite guys to talk to, interact with whatsoever, but uh, pleasure to have you here, Matt. Uh, I was waiting for the right time here. Uh, February is a shorter month. I only got 28 days. They liked us to pound out some good episodes here before we get to the, you know, get closer and closer to the combine and the draft. It was a perfect time to bring in Mr. Matt Waldman. Matt, I cannot thank you enough for joining us here this evening. Oh, man, it's such a pleasure, Jeff. I've really enjoyed getting the chance to chop it up with you. And, you know, the Browns will always be in my heart as a, as a team. So it's, you know, getting a chance to do this. I've been looking forward to it. And I've been hoping you'd ask. So I was glad that you did. Um, yeah, it is, and you know, obviously, you know, thank you, uh, thank you to uh, you know, Mrs. Waldman and Mrs. Lloyd here for uh, you know, keep in mind it is Valentine's Day. You know, look, we still got to do what we got to do. Look, May's gonna come. I mentioned this, and I thought I was an early on tonight. May's gonna come, and it's gonna breeze on through to the summer. Anything you ladies need, we're here. Uh, my beautiful wife Anne Marie, 14 years engaged today. Um, also, the nice. day the Yankees inquired, Alex Rodriguez, I do tease her every now and then, when she said today, hey, do you know what happened 14 years ago today? Yes, that was the day the Yankees inquired, Alex Rodriguez. But no, <laughs> I, as much as I love to buzz some shops, uh, 14 years ago today, after a 30-year run of making some questionable decisions, I made the best decision of my entire life. Um, and congratulations. Yes, of course. Thank you, Matt, so much. Um, Matt, look, obviously, if you look at Cleveland right now, look, I wouldn't say it's a complete blank canvas because I think you've got some quality paint. I think you've got some quality utensils to create a beautiful picture, which has been done in the last two years. Obviously, the, the front office change, I was against it when it first happened, but I, I do like the way it's come around with a strength in numbers approach with the hires they have and obviously the last hire of McClune as well. I mean, I don't want to say a hire or a consultant. Obviously, he's going to be consulting other teams. But I think when you have some, a lot of things that you do like and you have a chance to bring in, whether it's through free agency or through 12 picks in the NFL draft, I think a strength in numbers approach and having as many people that you trust in their opinions in the room, that's probably the best way to handle it. So I, as much as I thought Sashi was doing a solid job, I do think I like the product that they are, you know, front office-wise they have out today. Yeah, and I think that what, I think the way that you characterize that is really strong because when you think about 
how a team's managed. You, you know, certainly we may look back and if Sashi Brown's picks turn out to be as good as some of them looked, um, and they and they play well in in this incarnation of what Cleveland's doing, you know, a lot of people will look back and say, "Well, see, we should have kept Sashi Brown," or "Look at what he was," you know, "Look what he did there. It wasn't all his fault." And there's a lot of truth to some of that. Is that? But the thing is, is that if they're talking about having you know, a lot of voices that you trust in the room. What that probably is code for is, again, what we've seen characterized about this team's dysfunctions from a communication and management standpoint in the relationship between the owner, the GM, and the head coach. And and so you've got to have that alignment there. That's why the teams like the Steelers and the Ravens for a while have been good teams where you know what they're looking for, you know the type of players they want, how they define that, and everyone is charged with that kind of mission. And when there's some questions here or there about ultimately who they want to take at a certain time, there's usually someone there that everyone's like, okay, this guy's the tiebreaker. In the Steelers' room, it used to be Rooney, and Rooney would occasionally come down and he would make, he would say, this is who we're going to go with, even if everyone felt you know, there, was, there were arguments one way or the other, but he rarely did that. But when he did, he was often right. Um, so you look at that, and I think that the Browns need that. They need a strong – that organizational leadership needs to be strong and experienced from the top down. And if you don't have that in an owner, you need to have that in the next man below. And that owner needs to trust that. And then – that uh, that person in Dorsey hopefully has enough people around him that he knows who he can ask the right questions to about what you know what their opinion needs to be on a certain area where maybe Sashi Brown maybe he he came up with some great answers maybe had some novel ideas maybe had some really good novel ideas but in terms of you know having a team around them where people might bring up good counterpoints or maybe from a different point of view it didn't it wasn't working out and maybe that's not all Sashi Brown's fault it may be just as much Hugh Jackson's fault but Hugh Jackson won the won the battle you know and because he won the battle well he's going to get another chance to work well with other people now and we'll see if they can work well together yeah and that was the thing and I think for most people it was the well you know a lot of talent was brought in, and you know, look at times you know, guys were injured, and you didn't get to see the product of it all. It seemed odd that a coach who was one in, I guess it was 26, 21, 25 at the time, he was the one that won out, and you know, it was more of you know the way he handled things of you know, you know, basically you know, anointing Deshaun Kaiser when you had a bunch of veterans, they could easily just said, you know, we'll go with so and so this you know to start the season as opposed to making the outlandish of, in August, this is my guy, we'll understand there's going to be mistakes, and regardless of the mistakes, this is our guy. And then through an 0-16 season, when things, I, I don't want to say things got tough, because it was tough, obviously, the entire time when it was 0-16, when things got really tough, it was, well, you know, we got to pull him, he's the issue here. So the thing, I think it's tough for people to see it that way, because he was making outlandish proclamations and then wanted to basically pull them away yeah and i think that when you see things like that it makes it hard to believe who said what 
and who is really responsible because when you see someone make that kind of a statement early in the season that sounds like someone who's very confident um, in what they see on the field and then when that doesn't work out that and they say what they said later on it sounds like someone being told what they're supposed to say someone being told this is or being told what they're going to do and now they have to come up with some statement to basically explain that and and i think that we often see that with ownership ownership tends to be reactionary i talk about this a fair bit it's not just with the browns it's with other teams you got to understand that you know half of what an owner does or at least only a portion of it is dealing with what happens with the product on the field but also you know revenue for you know ticket sales and for marketing and advertising and and relationships in the community and public relations and being the figurehead of that organization and if you're someone who is very wealthy and has a lot of wields a lot of power or economic power because of the team that you have and you're dealing with pressure from people outside who may not know what jack about football but they they may know a lot about you know how they can help you fill your seats or give you a sweet advertising deal or you know be able to provide influence that will help you make money in ways that don't have to do with your actual product on the field well when you know you hear them talking about it or you're a new owner and you see what other owners are talking about and saying is good or bad you may end up being a little bit reactionary to the environment around you and and you may feel like that something has to be done and we often hear we often associate these people with a lot of money being great leaders but that's not always the case they may just have a lot of money they may have inherited a lot of money they may have been very good at one business um but they may not have been great managers in that business either but you know so i think that this is a situation where you know it would have been nice for them to take a more patient approach but you know here we are and you have and you do you have good team you have good players have some you know you have some good players here you have some players who've returned to the fold who could be really good and you have you know you have an opportunity for more picks with an experienced you know with an experienced offensive coordinator who's new you have you know with an you know with an experienced gm and some people that he's brought in who are his guys that he knows that when they say we like this player we don't like this player we like this fit we don't like this fit that it's not it's based on things that are in his compass range whereas with maybe with sashi brown maybe the information was delivered in a way or hard to deliver in a way where people a coach might look at it and go well this seems kind of out of left field where is this coming from and how do i know this is true and maybe that should be on the coach to learn a little bit more about data um and how that works but at the same time it, it should also ultimately be on the ownership to understand that if they're going to incorporate something new in there um that you know the people who are actually going to be involved need to have learn or develop an understanding for it and that's not going to happen in the span of a year or two or three. And, and I think that's the thing. And, and the problem is, is when you're the eternal bottom dwellers, I, I, you almost hope like it's a lottery ticket 
where you're going to just automatically, it's going to get that much better. And you kind of lose the focus that it's got to be a, you know, two steps, then maybe a step yeah. back. Three steps, yeah. another step back, that type of approach, right? Yeah, and I mean, I wrote about this probably five years ago at Football Outsiders when I was there. And I and I and it was something that Chris Brown of Smart Football suggested I did because there was some, you know, Twitter was playing their one of their daily or weekly games of, you know, what who would you hire from Twitter if they, you know, to be your GM if you had a team or your scout and that kind of thing. And I just mentioned what I, instead of answering that way, I kind of mentioned what I would do if I owned a team. And so then I fleshed that out into an article that's at Football Outsiders, and I said that my team would be the Cleveland Browns. And what I would do is basically... You know, and again, this is not realistic, you know, because it, it wouldn't, it couldn't happen this way. But if it could, it was enough, it was plausible enough to be able to pose it, but not one that when you get into the weeds of the details, it would probably happen this way. But if I could somehow find a loophole to the rule that would allow me to have the city own the team like Green Bay owns the team, um, it, you know, and be able to, create something that would allow that to happen I would create a plan where I would have 15 years and during those 15 years my image might be hung in effigy from the rafters in Cleveland um, everywhere it went as we started off pretty piss poor and then um, but I wouldn't mind because I'd have a process we'd continue to refine the process I wouldn't care what talk radio or podcasts or anybody like you and me would say about me and what's going on i would continue to try and get better long term and if the team is horrible throughout that entire time well you know i'll be gone and the city owns the team and they can figure it out themselves but i believe that if you stick to a process you stay patient and sticking to that process and you're really there to try and learn and develop it you're going to get better you're going to get better at it. You're going to figure out the right questions to ask. You're going to figure out the right and wrong ways to go. And you're going to have some ups and downs. But you're going to gradually get better to the point that by the end of that tenure, you know, you would have built a strong team. And part of that is having a good alignment between GM, scouting, and coach. And a lot of that is refining the scouting process in a way that the scouts aren't data collectors. They're film watchers. They don't need to be out there going to games to interview people as much as they often do. I would have them in watching more film as much as possible. I would probably have them going through a process where they're working together to make sure that the, the kinds of questions you ask and what you score on, that they're all in alignment about it. They all understand that they're they're looking for the same things and how to score and grade that and get better together as opposed to how scouts are trained now which is they aren't most teams don't even train them it's just like oh we've seen enough that you've shown up until to let you like football that you've worked in in some schools on some capacity and that you know enough about the game well it looks like you know enough now you head on in and if you want to learn a little bit more about something that's on your time and some position meetings you can check out but it's not there's not an, a real effort to be on the same page and to understand we want, you know, say you want wide receivers who, you know, we're looking for, you know, flankers who can do these five things extremely well. These two things aren't as much of a priority. And we want split ends who can do these three things really well. And then we also want some wide receivers that if they're, 
you know, who maybe be able to play multiple positions. And these are the type of athletic profiles, and the type of skill profiles that we want to see, as well as this is the mental makeup that we're looking for from the players so that we know that there's a stronger chance when we look at this that they, they're going to learn, that they like to learn, that they know how to learn, that they know how the process of learning how to learn. Because, you know, most of the work that's done on, you know, for players when they get into the league is being coached up on anything other than scheme and you need you need guys who are driven and know how to work smart on their own time to develop into being in a, at a good you know being the best position players that they can be and you know understanding those things all together and understanding what to look for and working on all that to be on the same page really is what propels you to do a better job at evaluating and picking talent and part of that too is including the coaching staff and making sure that they're involved and and it means that maybe you cut down on travel and do things differently instead of the guys traveling all over the place maybe they watch a a ton of film at home in their area you meet with them you know a couple of times a week to make sure everybody is on the same page to look at some watch film together with some of these people get your lists of players going and then send out your higher ups to some of these schools. Send up, you know, send send your your head of scouting or your head of a certain region out to some of these schools for a month and have them ask the right questions and have them trained in how to ask the right questions so that when you send scout because right now you can send scouts to a bar as I've talked about somewhere else <laughs> and you know you can send them somewhere and and they say okay well what's this player like and the, and the, the you know the recruiter says they party a lot you know I think they, they go out a good bit oh really well, where do you think they go I know they go to this place on camp you know off campus you know it's the main main place on the drag you know in, in the on the college town okay it goes there and you know one scout might ask a question um, you know of the bartender and a couple of you know waiters or waitresses so what's this you know have you seen this guy and they're like yeah he comes in He's in with a group of guys all the time. They're dressed like this. They sit at the table. They're there. They're there. They're like four or five times a week. That guy goes back, fills out a report, makes the editorialized comment. This guy loves to party, you know. And so you have one idea of what this guy's about. Where the other scout might have some training in law enforcement. You know, might have somebody who is trained in law enforcement supplying questions for them to ask or trained in industrial psychology or have some sort of experience and clue and say have them ask things in addition to what the other scout asked say what does he drink how long is he there you know who does he interact with and next thing you know you find out that that very same player characterizes a partier goes out three nights a week only brings only drinks the water he brings out of a water bottle um is only there 90 minutes um, from about 8.30 till 10 o'clock those three nights a week never leaves with anybody else but his three friends never is a problem and is you know and that's it and now, really likes are, the chicken wings they have exactly really <laughs> likes the chicken wings they have exactly and and so one's gonna say so one's gonna say he's a big partier and you know all the fans are going to be like, we don't want him. He's trouble. Remember the last guy we had who was a big partier? And then another team's just going to quietly say he's not a problem. We didn't think he was a problem. But they're not going to explain why. Because it just seemed too inconsequential to even go into that detail because they're not worried about what the other team scouts did or said. But that's the difference. And you have a lot of teams where 
scouts are given the opportunity to editorialize and be armchair psychologists and there's not a lot of oversight in what they do and there's not a lot of oversight either with you know scouting directors and gms in some regards to where they could be better at their job and if you change the process instead of saying you know this is how the nfl's always done it since 1950 whatever you know and you actually bring in some things but you understand how to manage it then you get better and that's those are some things that i look at that i would think about doing because i know that you know this whole blesto process of scouting is the same thing that's been done forever before each team had their own scouting department and because you know this is a a league that was raised on you know Hallis lombardi shula Knoll, and they were all players and became higher ups within their organization and influential this this is basically an organization that does not an organization but this is a a league that doesn't think its stuff stinks and basically it it so it looks at outside and says you don't know what you're talking about and there's animosity when new things get brought in like sashi brown and they don't know how to manage it um in terms of how to really make it the best it can possibly be they leave it into the dysfunctional world of you know old school guys who feel threatened by some of this stuff and then you and then you you can't manage it and get the best out of it, and you end up overreacting to it and saying, "Well, it doesn't work. See, we got to go back to this." And even that old way could be managed better. And to me, when you look at that, that's why I think that when we go back to the idea of Todd Haley and and you know go back well go back to the idea of like guys like Dorsey and McLuhan and the, all the people that he's brought in. At least he has a group that he's familiar with that speaks the same language. And if they if they if they fail, they're going to fail together. There won't be finger pointing; they'll be aligned. And either the the owner will look at this and give them a little bit more time and patience because there won't be as much dysfunction, or we'll see how reactionary he truly is. Um, but to me, it's the NFL is oftentimes about your grass is greener than mine your car is newer than mine i need to get a new car now even though the one they just got was perfectly good and they you know they could have given it a little bit more time to develop and you know and we could have ended up in a bet and you could end up in a better situation over that period of time but too much reactionary thinking and i think that the the Browns and Browns fans sometimes can be a little too reactionary one way to the other about things because they're tired of losing and I understand it and you know this this organization has had more heartbreak than pretty much any organization in sports on so many levels and there's a point though that you have to have a short you kind of have to shorten your memory and you have to kind of hope that this team will as an organization stops acting like it's drowning and flailing in every direction the moment that their head goes underwater and and need to learn you know how to be kind of calm and poised and deal with the storm even with the fan storm that that comes when things aren't going well the biggest thing that, that i take from that though is you know and granted now that you have this you know almost you know this fraternity got back together from you know basically you know every you know some guys obviously you know, were in different areas now everybody's back together you're, there's really nowhere to go but up, yeah. which, which is what could have happened with what you, what you had here. So it's almost to the point of you know they may get more praise than they deserve, which you know look anything positive for Cleveland fans is what they need. And and, and I agree. Like I've now that I've gotten into this, I kind of I really really get it more that I'm now 
dug in deeper. So you know, it's you know the band getting back together. But I mean, you, what you're taking is a I mean, basically the house burnt to the ground. So you want to know what once you start you know building a foundation and hey, there's some windows and look, there's some green grass again in the yard. You know, I mean, it's it, it's a lot easy. It's very easy to make this pretty again. Yeah. And, and what, what happens is that a lot of what will happen is that they have to really be clear about a philosophy, if you ask me. I mean, I would rather see this organization from the top down say, look, we're going to lose. And we're going to lose big sometimes. And we're going to have some awful stretches at times. We don't want that to happen. We're going to try and make it happen as fast as possible to turn this around. But if this does happen... We're not going to give up on the vision that we believe, and we're going to make it better the right way. We're not going to look at the Rams who suddenly, you know, reversed course and think that, you know, that we're going to automatically be able to do that. We may try some things that we believe will help reverse course because, you know, we're going to we're going to we believe in some of those things, but we're not going to have someone do the whole. Well, that new car there, look what it did. You need to get that now. No, we need to stick to what we're doing and understand that we have a good offensive line when it's healthy, that we have some playmaking receivers when they're healthy. We have the makings of good, of a good defense. We have some strong personnel. This is what we need, and we're going to continue to stick to that philosophy, even if we don't tell you fans what exactly that is yet. Even if you're railing against us, we're going to stick with it and and try and stay a little po- you know stay positive about it and stay the course and help the people who've made some mistakes maybe early on continue to learn and get better at their job as opposed to looking at it and saying well they they didn't they weren't superstars right away they didn't hit it out of the box right away so they're not good enough and we're going to fire them because there aren't many. There aren't many industries where that actually flies. No, exactly. You know, you cannot. You know, see the pants type approach doesn't work. But now, you know, seeing as we have, you know, the foundation is set here as far as building the new product. Um, there's, you know, like you mentioned, the offensive line. We think the defense has some highly functional pieces. There is some, you know could be some really, really good talent at the skill position. You need that numero uno, Matt. Um, look, Deshaun Kaiser's here. I was a fan. But the, at this point, when you're holding picks one and four, you are going to turn a positional a, a positional roster you know, group, which was the quarterback position, which was a negative, into a positive. Uh, you have three guys, look. I think it's it's a fantastic year quarterback wise because you're going to have a lot of guys available through free agency. You have a bunch of capable guys available during the draft, but I think it comes down to three names. You have Baker Mayfield, you have Josh Rosen, you have Sam Darnold. Give me some thoughts on these three and what is maybe the best guy to fit a Hugh Dorsey, Todd Haley blend. Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think let's start off with that. Hugh Dorsey, Todd Haley blend. I mean, if if from what I understand of Todd Haley, you know, when I look back at him talking about, you know, his offensive philosophy, you know, he's very much, we're not square peg round hole around here. We like to try and fit 
what we do around the talent that we have. That's kind of his, that's been kind of his MO, and he says he learned that from Bill Parcells back in the day. Um, so you have that. If he's brought in specifically to be that kind of guy, um, then that means that, you know, Hughes kind of stepping back and it's going to be Todd Haley's show on offense. And if that's the case, then you kind of have free reign of what is Todd Haley like? What does he want? You know, and you may say, well, recently we could look at Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. But I think that what an, an experienced offensive coordinator probably wants is someone who he feels like he can have frank conversations with, who he knows is going to do what they're supposed to do. Um, and if they don't, that they can, if they get pushed back, they're getting someone who really is committed to understanding as much as possible. So for me, when I look at Todd Haley, I remember Todd Haley as a coach in Kansas City basically being very straight up with Dwayne Bowe about how he was screwing up, you know, and got a good year out of Dwayne Bowe where a lot of people couldn't, um, where he was able to, you know, discipline Jamal Charles enough in terms of his fumbling issues and his ability to his tendencies to bounce things outside too much and get a superstar player out of him. So Todd Haley to me sounds like a fairly straight shooter. He sounds like someone who, you know, if you, if you grew up on Bill Parcells as a coach, you were going to be a straight shooter in, in many ways. And, and you're going to, you want that from a guy, you want your top guy to be a leader and you're not afraid of some confrontation. So if that's the case, I like Josh Rosen. And and the reason being is, and I'm going to go through the other guys too as possibilities, but Josh Rosen, the thing that was most damning about him off the field was that he's, he's not the most agreeable guy, that he ran through coaching staffs early on at UCLA, that he was immature and he pushed back on Trent Dilfer at the Elite 11 and, you know, and he, you know, all these different things. But even, you know, I heard about this stuff before it even came out on, uh, you know, uh, on, in major media, I had a quarterback coach who deals with a, you know, a number of, you know, high school, college and professional players in terms of coaching them on different techniques and things like that and he said Rosen is incredibly talented between the ears but he was one of those guys that just he he has a way of seeing things and can be and was off-putting and cocky early on and but a lot of that's changed and he's admitted a lot of that behavior and I I see Josh Rosen as the type of guy the way Trent Dilfer explained it in retrospect is he's the guy that cares about winning he cares about wanting to get the right answers and he doesn't care about he doesn't care about having a confrontation if he needs to have one to get what he needs to win and i think that todd haley's that kind of guy i think todd haley's the kind of guy that he and rosen could be in a meeting room and scream at each other about what's going on and what they want to do and ultimately they're going to come out of there and respect each other more and that it'll work out fine and rosen to me is that guy who if you want a quarterback to start right away, and I'm not a big believer in that, I think it's a, you know, it's a scenario where, you know, I'd like to see a little bit of, you know, a mix of, in, you know, in-game training and then film room training and time on the bench, and sometimes that means benching a guy when things aren't going well. But the way you do that's important. You don't bench a guy and say, well, he's not really the answer for us like what Jackson did, you know, later in the season. You do what twice, you know, 
yeah, twice. You do what, oh, I think we all remember Marty Schottenheimer pretty well in Cleveland. We do what Marty Schottenheimer did with Drew Brees, who credits Schottenheimer for developing him to be the quarterback he was. Drew Brees said, you can go to, I think it's one of those NFL shows that they did a retrospective on Schottenheimer, and Brees literally said it was it was Schottenheimer benching me. And I remember him benching me in a couple of games, and every time he'd say, look, you screwed up here. This is what you didn't do. I need you to sit for a little bit so that you can watch the game and calm down and, and just kind of think about what you did and get back into the mindset of what you need to do. So if we get closer, I can put you back in because you are still my guy. You just need a break. You're learning. You need to, you need to learn. And that kind of approach does wonders compared to being benched, no one talking to you, and then coming to the media or talking to you behind closed doors or going to the media and saying, this isn't our guy. You know, there, there's a big difference there. And I think that, you know, a guy like Rosen could get, if Rosen may not be, you know, may not get that treatment in Cleveland, but that's why I like him because I think he's the most ready between the ears technically and in a pro style offense where he can be used in more West, than you know, straight up traditional West coast con concepts he does have a little bit of what people call the disaster gene which is kind of that eli manning you know philip yep. rivers alex smith thing but i really think that a lot of that is him just trying to prove that he can mix it up and do some you know make some power throws that he shouldn't try to make and i think he'll grow out of that especially if he has the type of coaching staff that isn't saying isn't that is communicating with him well like Todd Haley would and he knows where he stands and he's not just trying to immaturely make a play because that's what he thinks he's supposed to do and he's digging himself into a further hole guys like Darnold you know I like Darnold Darn I think everyone likes Sam Darnold and you know Trent Dilfer even said this too in that same conversation about you know Rosen is that every owner's every team's gonna like Sam Darnold because he's a people pleasing type of guy and I think that when you look at Darnold, he's, you know, I've talked about him being kind of more the brawler than the ring technician. But I think that he he's kind of that exceptional case where the footwork may be all over his play, all over the place. <laughs> the arm motion may have, have a little bit of a wild wind up where it drops below his hip. But you watch him do it and he's like being able to hit throws that a lot of guys couldn't do in those circumstances. And the way that Brett Favre can hit throws that a lot of guys can expect, maybe not to the same capacity of far but certainly in ways where you go wow he throws with touch he throws accurately he can he can move around the pocket and finds a way to throw off platform with pinpoint accuracy in the short and intermediate range of the field sometimes in tight coverage and he's not killing us with mistakes in those plays he's more often killing us with mistakes because he's not reading the coverage correctly not because of what he's doing with some of this freelancing now he may miss some of that you know, on time paint by numbers quarterbacking that's technically perfect, like Tom Brady or what Rosen can possibly do as he evolves, where it's, you know, three, you know, five step drop. He's already made two reads during the first, you know, during the third step and the fifth step, and then he hitches once, and then pressure comes and he slides to the right, and he's doing it with such good balance that he can go back to that first or second read seamlessly and hit it on time because it's all in rhythm. With Sam Darnold, it might be a little more free jazz, whereas the rhythm isn't exactly, you know, he's not playing in the exact same rhythm as the bass player and the, and the drummer. But 
he's able to kind of work around that and still find someone. He may miss some of those paint-by-numbers throws, but he'll also hit throws that you never even dreamed of. So I like him, and I think that he could survive kind of a you know a, a rough start and and still and still kind of keep his head about him. And I think the fans will really take to his style of play because he is a heady, athletic, tough, gritty guy. I think Rosen's a gritty guy, but he's more cerebral, whereas you've got, like, Darnold gives you more of what, you know, you think of Flacco and and Roethlisberger give in that division. And Rosen gives you more of what Bernie Kosar used to give in that division. Um, you know, back in the day, he was tough, but it was more quiet toughness. He was more cerebral. He wasn't going to beat you, you know, by you know, you know, running across the field and throwing across his body and doing something crazy, you know. And then you've got Mayfield, who that's a good segue into him. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, Mayfield to me, I think, can be a good starting quarterback in the NFL. But I, you know, I put this out on Twitter with a number of followers because I just wanted to see what people would think. And and I, I, I probably shouldn't start it with this way, but I'll, I'll explain a little bit more later, is that I took tape of Jeff Garcia and I like just showed tape of Garcia in the NFL with the Browns, with the Buccaneers, with the 49ers, and I just said, what NFL prospect does this guy remind you of? And everyone said Baker Mayfield. And everyone said it and then kind of cringed and went, uh, you know, like, but I would kind of contend that if Jeff Garcia were playing in a spread offense in college football, would he be regarded the way Baker Mayfield was? Because he was a pretty darn good quarterback in college who Bill Walsh really liked and thought was an interesting, good player who had to go through the CFL before the days that, you know, that the, the style of offense has changed in the NFL and he had some pretty good seasons as a backup or your your kind of bridge starter. And when I look at Baker Mayfield, I think that he's the type of player who has a lot of those Garcia mannerisms of moving around and making throws on the move and being able to buy time. Um, but he's better when he can get outside the pocket. He's not when he's got dealing with tight coverage, tight man coverage, and with bookending pass rushers who keep him in and have to try and paint by numbers in rhythm throw he's less he, he's a little less consistent at that than he is you know than other other quarterbacks who are in this particular tier um so i, I look at him and i feel like that he'd be best in an offense where there's a lot of movement pre-snap a lot of pre-snap motion a lot of misdirection type of feel to that offensive system things that we saw they did with Deshaun Watson where they retrofitted a lot of what Houston used to do with things that they feel would work well with Watson's movement now Mayfield has a better arm than Watson in terms of velocity as a thrower um, and so there'd be a little bit of a wider range of what he can do but I just think that when you're looking at a quarterback there there's they're gonna do if they pick Mayfield they're picking someone who they're gonna do more to fit him around and they feel like that they've got answers there that mesh really well with him and I and I just think that you know when you look at it from that perspective I, I think the guys who really offer the most to help you now and not get too wild and at the same time give you a lot of growth potential it's going to be rosen and darnold in that order 
Well, I think the thing with Rosen is, and, and this is what everybody keeps saying is, you know, he's he's very smart, and this is the thing that maybe rubs people the wrong way. And you know, it was always you know the tradition of football thing was, well, just do what you're told because I'm the coach and you're the player. You know, to get Josh Rosen to buy in, it's like, well, explain to me, show me. Here's the whiteboard. Show me that. Here's the tape. Show me why you think this is going to work. And you know, and Matt, you know, like we talked about before we got on this air. You know, obviously, you know, your daughter's 25 years old. My kids are 11 and 10. I know they are smarter than me at the ages that yeah. I was. So you have to. And this is one of the bigger problems in the NFL is is you have to adapt to what you're dealing with. And this is part of maybe Lamar Jackson's issue, but we're not going to get him tonight. Is you have to open up, and you you have to realize, as an older person, you have to broaden your horizons to understand, you know, what these guys are now. Oh, he's a twenty-year-old kid. He's a twenty-one-year-old kid. No, he's not. He's twenty-seven-year-old you, essentially. Yep, that's a great point, and it's and it matches very well with the point I often make, which is. The way the NFL media characterizes players and the way that they spin players to the NFL media and the way that teams, what they expect these players to behave like, they expect them to behave like 22- and 23-year-olds going on 58 or 68. Like they should act like staid conservative grandfathers who happen to be CEOs of their firm or company and so if you're going to expect these guys first of all you shouldn't expect them to be that I always say that they're managers they're not CEOs they're the guys in between the C-suite and the the you know the frontline employees they got to relate to both They've got to lead both. They've got to lead upward with the higher upset, and they've got to they've got to be able to motivate and execute well with the people that they're working with on the field. And so, if you want them to do that, though, they've got to understand what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it, and they've got to have the you know someone that they trust within that that you know organization. And and they also have to be leaders in the way where they do have to speak up and say, "This isn't working. Why is this not working? This is what I see." Can you tell me if what I'm seeing is right? And then come to a conclusion about that rather than, oh, well, on the one hand, we want you to be the 68-year-old CEO going, you know, you know, even though in a 23-year-old's body. But on the other hand, we don't want you to act like a CEO and ask questions. We don't want you to act like even just a manager and ask questions about what, you know, how this works or come up with ideas. I mean, everyone applauds Tom Brady for his TB12 show where there's a point where he's, you know, making little tape recordings about what he thinks Rob Gronkowski should do on a certain route that he's studying, and then he's sending these to Josh McDaniels. And everyone's like, that's what leadership is. That's what quarterbacking is. That's why he's so great. That's what it is. That's why he's so great. No, dude, that's not why he's so great. That's what every quarterback should be doing. Every quarterback should be giving feedback to their coaching staff. What makes Tom Brady great is the relentless work that he puts in to refine every aspect of his game in addition to some of these soft skills. But if you want if you're going to pick a player and value him that highly, then you need you also need to have the expectation that he's going to he's going to push back on things and that that's going to be okay and he's going to 
but you also need to have the understanding of whether he's going to do it appropriately or not and that he's mature enough to do it appropriately now so if i'm going to ask any questions about josh rosen's character it's not going to be whether he put sexually suggestive signs or whatever he did in, you know in somebody's yard when he was a teenager or that he had a hot tub in his room or that you know or that he got into it with trent dilfer at you know age 18 or 17 or that he said something so off-putting in his final meeting in stanford that he was you know that they denied they decided to rescind their scholarship offer and and he said it was his fault he, he, and he regrets it because that's where he always wanted to go what i want to know is i want to I want to see some proof. I want to find a way to ask questions that give me some proof to know that when something goes off kilter and off plan, that he's going to approach things the right way with me in that meeting room after the game and not to the media and not in the locker room, but in the, in the right way so that we can get it done. And if the right way for me is to him come in there and cuss me out and yell at me, but I'm the only one he's doing that with, and I told him that's okay to do, then I don't have a problem with it. You know, that those are the types of things you have to know about these players. And that's why the interviews and the team visits and all those things are important, though sometimes those guys just yuck it up and think that they got a feel for a guy until things go wrong and suddenly you see that other part of their personality. Or, or they think that doing some military-style training, you know, interview you know putting them under stress is somehow going to tell them that rather than you know maybe you know putting some actual on-field situations in there and and seeing how they behave exactly and the other one was uh dan arlovsky 12-year nfl vet we had him on he was talking about sam darnold and he was very pro on him and one thing he said about him was is you look at sam darnold you look at tony romo these are guys you don't put tape on and say, hey, go be him because they kind of do it and it's, you know, a little funky, a little bit different. But yep. at the end of the day, they're in their zone and it works for them. Yes. Yes. And I think that that's why if, if you took either of those guys, I would, I would not have an argument about that. And when you look at Darnold, I think of guys like, you know, people talk about Aaron Rodgers with some of the things that he could do. And, you know, certainly people don't want to make those types of heady comparisons for a young guy. But stylistically, you can see stylistically some of those things. And I think the Romo um, thought is a very good fit there. And, and, you, and you have to understand that as long as what they do is replicatable in a positive way, even if that's not perfect, you know, technique, that's okay technique is a guideline technique is also about you know doing it right for your own body at times and that and sometimes people over teach technique to the point that it takes what's good out of the player um so to me you know what darnold does it, it a lot of what he does that people are going to find flaws with ha doesn't hurt him as much as it may appear and i think that you know people will blame some of those things on technique when he has his struggles early on but it, you know, they can do things to make it work out. Carson Wentz was a West Coast quarterback at North Dakota State. Carson Wentz's footwork was horrific. He looked like he was planted in cement half the time when he went from his first to second or second to third read and was often off, 
you know, often way off with his accuracy. And people talked about his arm motion being the problem when it was really his feet. So one, that was the first, A, people not knowing what they're talking about. B, you know, when they did find out what, what the problem was, people were worried about all that. Well, you know, instead of worrying, you know, people were like, well, he was a West Coast quarterback. He's obviously got to understand and he, to be good in college, you had to be able to do that. No, not necessarily. He was good enough in the college game to do that. So when they fixed that offense to change it to being more spread-oriented and where he could just hop into a throwing position without a drop, uh, you know, on a lot more of his throws, and he he had a lot more of the, a lot of things you see Baker Mayfield doing, suddenly his accuracy's up and the team's winning. You know, it's not all on him, but he was a major component of, his ascent was a major component of this team getting better. And a lot of it was the coaching staff recognizing how they can change things around to make him a better player and sometimes that meant just minimizing the weaknesses that they know are always going to be there so when i look at guys like rosen and darnold and even mayfield it's really about the coaching staff being smart enough to do what todd haley says he's going to do which is we're not worried about we're not going to be about you know round pegs and square holes we're going to try and tailor to that so if there's true to their word then whoever they pick or if they somehow which i know it's not going to happen but if if they did somehow stay with Deshaun Kaiser, you know, I think Deshaun Kaiser is more talented than probably, you know, all but three of these players, at least from what I saw last year. And I wouldn't have argued with you if Deshaun Kaiser came out this year and did what he did the past two years at Notre Dame and came out this year and someone said, well, we'd like Kaiser over Rosen and Darnold. I would say I can understand the logic behind that, even if I don't necessarily agree. So, you know, I think the Browns are in a better situation than it looks. They just maybe need to um, just kind of calm down and let these players grow and develop and not make any, you know, bold proclamations about any young player and just let them grow up. And when when the, the when pe- folks like us in the media want them to make bold proclamations, just roll your eyes at us and tell us to shut up and sit down in, in, your, in whatever way that you do that we're the coaches we got this under control and we've we've got good groceries we may not have liked what some of the selections that were made because they don't fit what we want to do in the kitchen but all the cooks are in alignment here and it's going to take and we're doing a lot of prep time right now i think one of the biggest issues though for kaiser was every time he turned around it was almost a different set of wide receivers which i mean you know for a 21 year old guy and obviously he came from a tough situation in notre dame whether it was, you know, obviously Josh Gordon late in the year, but it was Corey Coleman week one, seemed like he was developing a nice rapport. Then Corey Coleman, obviously, you know, gone for seven weeks. Bryce Treggs, Sammy Coates, Kenny Britt, who was just there for the money and had no, you know, zero intention. Look, I know no Kenny Britt. No business of still being in the league, sorry, but I, yes. Yes, but I know Kenny Britt from New Jersey. I know him from Rutgers. There's good Kenny Britt. And yeah. he feasted on the fact that he was in L.A. on a piss-poor team, put up a really good year and got his money. And yep. that's when bad Kenny Britt comes back. So, I mean, it was really tough for Deshaun because he was looking around. It was like, well, you know, and then Ricardo Lewis and uh, Higgins, you know, the kid from Colorado State. Every time he turned around, there was a new number one, number two wide receiver. So, I you know, that made it difficult for him. Uh, Matt, I know the Georgia program is near and dear to your heart. And it's, it's really cool this year. It is with these two guys, both as accomplished as they are. And for Nick Chubb, it's a fantastic story. 
because the injury was, I mean, when it first happened, it wasn't a question of an ACL and, you know, all we'll see in, you know, 11, 10, you know, 12 months. It was it was pretty devastating. He's come back strong. Sonny Michel, now here is a guy I've fallen in love with as the 2017 season went on. So a tale of two dogs. These guys are both really good, and I don't see any reason that both of these guys are not second-round picks. And I'm looking at Cleveland with 33, 35, 64, and 65. And they're going to need a running back because there's a parting ways of a former Bulldog. So give you state your case here. Yeah, and I, I look at it this way. Um, and this is a bold statement that I think a lot of people will probably disagree with because especially if you come from the Northeast and you've seen Saquon Barkley do his thing. And I love Saquon Barkley. I think that he's a fine running back. And the player that I would compare Saquon Barkley to is probably Fred Taylor. I think of what what Fred Taylor was able to do in his prime, and Saquon Barkley has those types of skills. Um, But when I looked, you know, when if you were going to judge Nick Chubb pre-injury, he's the best back I've seen since I've been evaluating. Period. And and it's it's by an extent that I would have taken him clearly over Ezekiel Elliott who was the best back I had evaluated before that um, so that's how good Nick Chubb is when he's fully healthy people look at Saquon Barkley and go that's a freak of nature you don't know most people don't know how much of a freak of nature Nick Chubb is as an athlete um, and in terms of being able to squat 600 pounds in terms of you know his his speed, the deep speed that he had coming into Georgia, you know this is a guy that Leonard Fournette, after his freshman year, the the, the best back since Adrian Peterson hype that uh, that Leonard Fournette was coming in on, turned around and basically said to the media, Nick Chubb outplayed me as a freshman. I mean, it, it's no doubt he was the better back. You know, he was better than me. Nick Chubb is a guy that when you watch him play at his best, has fantastic decision-making. He understands how to read creases. He takes the, he takes the mature decisions, the decisions where maybe you're only going to gain a yard or two and push it up the middle, but it's in the red zone, and you know that your team cannot lose field goal position with you trying to reverse field and lose five to seven yards or put yourself in a second and 15 or a third and 18 because of the fact that you think there's a shot that you can bounce this play outside or reverse field or make five different moves and somehow get the defense discombobulated and turn that broken play into a long touchdown that's what saquon barkley does now people will blame his line and there's a lot of reasons for why that line isn't exactly you know wasn't good at times but there were a lot of plays where he gained positive yards and he could have gained three to four more or he could have gained just you know one to two yards and kept his team on schedule and decided that he was going to try and go for those big plays where he had no reason to do so and people will, and people will try to psychoanalyze it and say it's because the line was so bad he didn't trust them but when you look at the tape you don't see you see some of those flaws with his decision making. That's common to a lot of great backs who came in the league: LeSean McCoy, Jamal Charles, um, even lesser backs like Noshawn Marino. You know, Fred Taylor used to do that early on in his career. So he can grow past it, but Chubb already has that maturity. 
already has that maturity. He he's he's a better after contact runner than Saquon Barkley is. Um, he's a guy that can literally really push a pile, and his after contact balance is better. Maybe not be statistically better, but you look at it on film, and it's you look at similar types of contact that they deal with, and Chubb tends to have better results with that. He also has a lot better speed than characterized. Um, you know, when he was before the injury, you know, he was he, the the speed he had was probably in the range of what Barkley puts up there. It was that he was that fast at at that 220 to 225 range. Um, but now now you're looking at him post surgery, and even then, there's some tape watching him against linebackers at North Carolina. You know, a team that has always been known for recruiting good athletes, even if they can't get them to be you know, top of the line. His first game back, first game back from tearing three ligaments, not the ACL, but three. And I told Gene Bramble, who's, you know, if you know the him, doc. he's, yeah, the doc at, at Football Guys, who does a lot of injury, you know, analysis. We were coming home from the Senior Bowl, and I was telling him about Chubb's knee injuries, and he said, that can't be right. He didn't have those three injuries. He had to have torn an ACL because those three injuries, those three injuries are really bad. Like that's a really that's a really rare injury. And he came back in like nine months and started that. Now that can't be right. Are you sure? And I looked it up again, <laughs> and showed him, and showed him, and he was like, "I've never. That's rare. That's rare." And then we, I was reading him some of the things that, you know, how this guy, you know, his healing was freakish kind of like adrian peterson freakish in that level like what he was going back and doing and then he was already squatting more than derrick henry ever squatted at alabama a month before training camp he was already doing that and when he came back against north carolina his first game after that devastating injury they gave him the ball over 30 times in that game and they stacked the box on him and he broke some big plays, and at the end he broke a big play where he literally outran a good angle from a cornerback for over 60 yards in that game. You know, he had over 220 yards in that game. Um, and it wasn't just the product of, you know, Tevin Coleman-like, you know, runs where you have, like, five carries of negative one, two, and three yards, and then you hit a 78-yard <laughs> run. This was a guy getting, you know... Five, seven, nine, twelve—you know, over and over again—and then occasionally getting stuffed for one or two, or maybe having one five-yard loss. But most of the time, hit chain-moving runs. And so when I look at Chubb, if you know, and you see that he's that freakish of an athlete that he could come back and do that, and then you combine it with Sony Michelle, who was the higher-regarded prospect when they both came in, and as Mark Rick said before he left. Nick Chubb was our Heisman candidate. Sony Michelle might be our best offensive player. You know, that's a conund- that's a wonderful conundrum, but it means what does Sony Michelle do a little better than Nick Chubb? So what do we put him in the lineup to do? Well, that's to catch passes. So Nick Chubb can catch, but Sony Michelle can do it a little better. Sony Michelle in space does things a little bit more dynamically than Nick Chubb does. Um, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to use Sony Michelle in more spread out looks at times. Um, and 
we're gonna and with Michelle though he can pound it between the tackles he's got that great size he's very savvy in terms of how to read creases and hit them fast he and Chubb have excellent vision and so they're both guys who are well-rounded backs with good balance good you know functional power if not even even more than functional power um but also have that speed and burst michelle has a little more of it um but chubb especially if he you know regains some of it you know over time i think that you're looking at a one-two punch that if if a team decides that the splashy barkley pick isn't for them and they want to pick these two guys one of these two guys you know later on i think they've got i think they absolutely made the right decision and while the georgia program's near and dear to my heart on a level of like that i I worked at the university of georgia i gotta be honest i've never been a huge fan of that team i i've never been to a game even though i graduated from there um i was a university of miami guy i was that was always kind of my team so come on matt we don't want to hear this on this show (laughs) come on (laughs) are you a notre dame guy you gotta be Come no, on, man. You know it's all about the Knowles. Come on, man. Yeah, see, there you go. That's See, right. but I mean, I know I know you're pumping your, you know, they won. They finally yeah. won. They finally won. They finally beat the Knowles this year. They did, but, you know, but, it, you know, that's, and my point just being is that I'm not really a Georgia homer. I mean, like, I was I even know, offered. But I was I even, say near and dear to your heart, I didn't put any fandom to it. I did No, you didn't, but other people might. So I just thought I'd clarify that. But, but I am a Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle fan of their games i'm a big fan of of terrific running backs and you the browns could not go wrong with either one of them because when you and i i mentioned the university of miami because as a guy who was a big fan of them you know you had a, a pack of backs which you know? doesn't make any sense you don't strike me as a you guy Matt. you just don't yeah i know i i it's hidden you know i don't have that kind of i i'm, I'm not the jersey transplant guy made a lot of money who decided to go I to can't school see and party, in that, you know? I can't see in that green starter jacket with the orange lettering. I just can't just, just not see Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, but um, but I will say, I, I, I won't bring up the first game I, well, I will bring up the first game I went to, which was the Seminoles game when they were number one in 1980, you know, heading into the 88 season on SI. And, mm. and, and yeah, and, yeah, that was a, that was a fun day. Thirty-one yeah, three. Not a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah, but but when you look at when those were some great battles. But when you look at the running backs at Miami at during a certain period of time, you've got Edron James, Clinton Portis, Willis McGahee, you know, and and you look at guys you know like that who are coming out of that school and, and playing at that level. And I think that when I remember when Isaiah Crowell got in, and then you had Gurley and Marshall and Chubb and Michelle, and and it was just after Crowell left, um, and he was still at Alabama State. And I was thinking, this team, they they have totally gotten a conveyor belt of NFL running backs here. And I and as much as I like Gurley, I mean Gurley was up there too. Um, if Nick Chubb. That there's no real concerns about the knee. Not like long. I'm not talking like Jayajayi. You know, long term, maybe it's bad, but he can still play well. Um, I'm talking like we're worried about him being able to cut. We're worried about him having, you know, any top speed, which I don't think the film shows in any way, shape, or form. Not at all. Um, no. 
you know, then I I think that if the Browns got themselves Nick Chubb or Sony Michelle, I would be elated for that team. It, I mean, it's a great group. It's a great class, and it, it it's it's fun when you have a school that has two guys who are you know basically you know competing against each other now, but both have resumes to do it. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, is that people look at stats so much, at workload and, and you know, how they were used, and they, and they classify them based on that production, as opposed to actually just looking at what they do, you know, and how they do it. And, you know, understand that these are both guys who can get it done in every way, pass protection. They can get it done as receivers. They, they, can, break yard, they can break at a distance. They can also get you those chain-moving runs, and they're going to make the wise decisions right now. Michelle has a little bit more of a ball security problem. He has probably the, one it's of the worst fumble rates. Yes. Yeah, it's very low. Yeah, and that's so. That's kind of the that's been kind of the secret, the not so secret thing about his issues there, and he'll have to secure that. Chubb, though, I mean, let me tell you, if you want a back who can give you what Ray Rice used to give you, you know. Uh, back in the day, in his prime, you're looking at you're looking at that kind of player from Nick Chubb, and maybe even a little more dynamic, a little more powerful, um, but with that similar agility and burst and vision, the great load carrying vision. And when I think of Browns teams, I think of teams that you know back in the day that could you know basically shove it right up the gut of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the ball and and you know and hopefully teams like the Ravens down the line and be able to have that kind of attitude because we all know as Browns fans back from if you were born in the you know any time during the 70s and 80s and watched them during that time that the that the spirit of what Cleveland Browns football was is what the Baltimore Ravens have been doing um, and you know even if the the personnel isn't all that what we'd like and what may say is good or, or not quite so good it's still about power football attitude physicality you know with a quarterback that can you know give you some dynamic play you know at key moments and i think that you know when you can get a back who you feel like can deliver that for you um you know chubb and michelle are those types of players that that can give you that shot and you can still acquire other talent okay matt um we're going to hit one more here before we start to slowly wrap this up. Um, the wide receiver core, yes, they need assistance, but it's like it, it, it's tough because, you know, as you know, the old phrase is your best ability is your availability. This, the wide receiver core can vanish quickly. Obviously, with Josh Gordon, you know, jo- uh, Corey Coleman, you know, we've you know two long stretches of injury in his first two years in the league. So I wanted to bring to you a couple of guys, and I know you've highlighted them well. Christian Kirk, Michael Gallup, James Washington. I think these guys could be solid addition pieces, but they could also be, any one of the three could be solid pieces if, God forbid, they were asked to do more than when they were originally brought in. If you had to give them more of the pie, they'd be able to handle it. So give a couple of thoughts here on these three. I know you've highlighted them well. Sure. I think Christian Kirk gives you kind of what people hoped they would get from former Buffalo second-round pick Josh Reed back in the day at LSU, a guy who can run the ball after the catch, who can make plays deep as you need him to on occasion, and 
you know, but also be able to be there, you know, in the short game and make some contested plays. So he's a physical presence with some dynamic skill, and he can give you some special teams help as well. So he's kind of gives you that utility work that that can work both inside and outside. Gallup's kind of to me a kind of a mix of Michael Thomas and Robert Woods. You know, a kind of player who is going to be where he's supposed to be as a route runner. He can get deep on you. He's got some pretty good acceleration, and he's someone that often makes some pretty nice plays at the catch point. And, you know, for me, if they're going to get a new quarterback or they're going to stick with the one that they have, however it shakes out long term, they're going to need a player more than anything, that whole availability. It also goes to being available in terms of on the field, being where you're supposed to be. Sammy Coates and Kenny Britt and some of the other young players – were you know for various reasons for some of the players it was that they just didn't get it and didn't maybe work hard enough or weren't willing to work on a level to really be where they were supposed to be and be available um on a level with that a level of immediacy and then some were just too young to really like have a grasp of it maybe and less experienced and i think that gallops a guy who that's his calling card and he's a guy that works very well against zone coverage and understands how to work with his quarterback pre-post-snap to read the defensive triangle and go, okay, I know that we're supposed to run this route on this particular play, but you know, as we talked about in practice a million times, this is that this is that situation that's showing up pre-post-snap, you know, within those seconds before the snap and second after, that. I need to break this route off and and head straight down the field, and my quarterback's going to hit me in the back of the end zone. That's the type of thing Gallup can bring you. And then there's Washington, who might be my he might be my favorite wide receiver in this draft. Um, I think the fir- I think the biggest thing we learned about James Washington through the senior wall process was is maybe Oklahoma State misused him. Yeah. He was kind of like their hey, we're going to throw four or five deep a game, but the footwork and Matt, you know, I love the wide receiver position. The footwork in the individual on the shorter routes, my God, yeah, it was impressive. Yeah, it was a revelation for a lot of folks, and for me too, because it was you're watching him on post routes and going, okay, great, he can stack guys and he's catching these balls. He's got great, you know, he's got great ball tracking skill in terms of just the ball over his shoulder, and he kind of looks like a you know a young Paul Warfield back in the day, you nice. know, dating myself, but you know, he kind of had that look of him, kind of a halfback looking type of guy who could run run down the field free like that. But then you watch him in the Senior Bowl, and that's and Senior Bowl has the best opportunity for you to really see how complete a wide receiver's game is. Like you know, you see Cooper Cup pigeonholes a slot guy, but then you watch him, you know, just spanking people left and right last year in practices using like he's like I'm going to use this move on you this time, and the next time I'm going to use this move on you. This time I'm going to pair these three moves together, and I'm going to get past you. And they were done in an efficient manner where it wasn't the type of footwork or handwork where you go, oh, that's pretty, but he's but by the time he got through doing all that, the ball's already being thrown. He was doing it efficiently. Um, James Washington was that way this this year. Maybe not with his quite the same library, but a pretty proficient one. And he was beating everybody you know and doing it in different ways he's got a chop he's got a rip he has a hook move that when he gets hung up at the sideline next thing you know he's basically reversed positions with the guy he's you know he can layer on his three-step or four-step release with a and layer it maybe with one of those with a rocker step and put them in conjunction with each other and 
you know, and just throw different things at the at the defender and use them wisely. And he's just smooth, you know. And and I think that when you look at him, he's that guy that I look at that you say, yeah, you could put him. You could put him in different areas, and yeah, he's only used. Some people say, well, he's only been used on the right side of the field, um, you know. And you know, I know Matt Harmon, a buddy of ours, has done some study that somebody was talking about that that said that you know he sees some correlations to receivers who struggled, who only started off on the right side and could only play on one side. But I think when you look at his skill set and what he does um, well. I'm not so worried about that. I think that what I'm more worried about are, as I told the guy on Twitter, the 55 other points that I look at for receiving um, and how that fares out, you know, pans out. And he's pretty darn good, and I think that he'll make a strong transition. And if the Browns could come away, <laughs> the Browns could come away with guys like James Washington and Nick Chubb, um, you know, I would be that. That would be massive. And that's the thing, you know, and, and the fans don't understand is you have seven of the top 97 picks in this draft. You know, it is it is that easy, and it can be done, and you hope with the front office people that have brought in with all the homework that's going to be done, I mean, this is, you know, it's going to Costco. I mean, you should be able to get this done. Now, yeah. Matt, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it may not even be going to Costco. It might be going to, like, the... It might be going to Saks Fifth Avenue after hours with like the key card and someone saying it's a five finger discount, baby, and you and there is no security tape right now. I mean, that's <laughs> what it could be if they're if they're uh, if they're on their game. I mean, this could be Ocean's Eleven if they want it to be. Yes. Um, we'll see if it happens. Before we let you go, um, uh, one of my favorite Browns guys, writers, and he's uh, you know. Probably he's the most frequent guest of Lockdown Browns, Pete Smith. He wanted to know, um, Matt, uh, we know you follow regimes and you like to follow schemes of teams. Any chance you're close to maybe, you know, putting those eyes back towards the Cleveland Browns? (laughs) That's a great question. And, I mean, the Browns are always going to be in my heart as a team that that I follow. And, um, I will always be rooting for them, and I think that probably, if I'm being honest with them, with myself, it's one of two things: either I'm the, you know, I, I, I'm just not dealing with the pain very well, so I've decided to try and just separate myself from it. Meanwhile, um, I jumped right into it. Yeah, exactly. See, so <laughs> I, I've, I've, you know, you, you know, we'll just put it this way: you know, I was a, I was a Browns fan growing up. You know, I was raised on Browns football. And, you know, after everything that happened in the 80s, I also had a parent who lived in Denver and was a a Denver Broncos fan. So it was a pretty heated thing during those times. So that was pretty intense for me. Um, Though I will say to Browns fans that the next time I see John Elway, I I do promise that I will try to sack him, even if it gets me in jail. So, um, but (laughs) but (laughs) I did almost have that opportunity at the Senior Bowl a couple years ago. but uh, you're in better shape now, though, Matt. You're working I'm out, Matt. You're ready for uh, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I might only like break my shoulder bouncing off old, old John Elway at this point. But uh, just don't, but, yeah, don't, just I, don't aim for that chin. Don't aim for the yeah, exactly. Just maybe for the knees. I think that's probably the way to go. But um, 
but seriously, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a chance. And I, and if I'm really being honest with myself, I'm always going to be a Browns fan. It's just painful. And I, and I, and I use the convenient excuse of being a football analyst and studying all these other teams and players of being able to admire those, because to be honest, as much as I've enjoyed following the Titans and the Titans, I was a big fan of because of McNair and George, and they really reminded me. I can't believe it's been. I can't believe it's been eight years already. Yeah, I know. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rest in peace. And and certainly, you know, I think about, you know, that that team. It was still very close. And while I was a big Russell Wilson fan coming out of school, I don't think, you know, and I really enjoyed watching the Seahawks win the Super Bowl. It. It would have paled in comparison to what it would have felt to see the Browns get to the Super Bowl. Um, so I don't think it's either that I will never be quite the fan that I was when I was a Cleveland Browns fan, and that's just me and my change, or it's um, or the simple fact of the matter is is that I'm just in denial and waiting for them to, to be good. And even then, I feel like if I'm waiting for them to be good, I'd be a little bit ashamed of myself to say that I'm now back and being a big time Cleveland Browns fan because then I'd feel like a fair weather fan in that way so you know to me I guess the I guess the thing is is I'm rooting for them to do well um I don't know if I'll ever be quite the fan I was when I was growing up in Cleveland um but I will you know I am hoping the best for them and and and, and the fans because they are a terrific set of fans and it's just been really you know hard times for them and and like we talked about earlier there, there's a lot of things that are looking up and I think that there's an opportunity then for them to really make hay this year. Well, Matt, don't worry about it. I, I've got the keys. I'll get you back in if you need to. <laughs> I appreciate it. Guys, Lockdown Browns, episode 164. Guys, if you do not know Matt Mullen's work, my God, get on it. it, it it's good. It's deep. It's, it's the perfect combination of watching film with the spoken word, the written word. It, it, it's fantastic. Um, anybody... You know, myself and plenty of other guys, anytime we feel like we want to learn something, we go, we watch Matt, we listen to Matt. It's, like I said, it's grad school type stuff. Guys, I appreciate the support. Follow the uh, show at Locked On Browns. You guys are fantastic with that. Follow the personal account at Jeff underscore LJ underscore Lloyd. Uh, I cannot thank you guys enough. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough. It, it's, it's been great where we are now almost five months into this the journey every month the numbers are just getting higher and higher i appreciate that for mr matt waldman for myself guys everybody have a great night let's go browns and we'll be back tomorrow night